Hello and welcome to episode 181 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, back in Chicago and here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Welcome back and congratulations on completing your ridiculous flight itinerary with Thank really you, sir. no issues whatsoever and I mean, an upgrade. Yeah, all of the issues that arose actually ended up working in my favor, even though there were some delays. Like I said, both flights on the way there were delayed similar amount of time. So those didn't end up costing me much on the way home. Made it up to Stockholm after we recorded the podcast. Had a lovely evening in Stockholm, full moon rising and and very beautiful stuff. Made it home on Saturday connected through New York, uh, waved as I landed, Jason. I hope you hope you saw me going. And then because of the random assortment of Sky Team flying that I've ended up doing over the past year, I have now achieved what I had never set out to achieve because this trip was the first time I'd ever flown Delta, um, let alone the, the rest of Sky Team. I find super difficult to believe. I mean, I know Delta's not a hub carrier in Chicago in any way, but come on, really? I, I've no, flown United I, a bunch, and they don't have a hub in New York, and I ought to confirm that. that again, that <laughs> Newark is not New York. Newark is not New York anymore. That's right. I went back after I said because I believe that. And so I was like, okay, let's make sure I'm not mistaken. And I can't find any time. And, and there were a couple times that I've flown through Detroit. So I was like, maybe I flew Delta there. I flew up to Miami. No, both of those times were pre-merger Northwest flights. Hmm. Well, you didn't get Delta's best aircraft. We know that for sure. So you'll have to come back another time and try something a little better. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try anything with a with a working screen. So, so on the way out, the screens needed to be reset a bunch of times. On the way back on the 767, it was a different 767, but on the way back, my screen got stuck on the moving map, which was ended up being fine. Not the worst thing to get stuck Not, on. No, it, it, at least it wasn't stuck on something I didn't like. But no, good flights. And I got uh, the flight from New York to Chicago was empty. So I, I, got, a, I got an upgrade on my E-175, which is, you know, I'm not going to lo- look any, any horses of gifting in the mouth. And I will take what I can get and say thank you very much. Made it home. Did not get COVID on the trip. Fantastic. All things considered a very well-traveled exercise. And I made it home just in time to prepare for what we expected would be a very well-tracked flight. I'm referring to the carriage of Queen Elizabeth II's coffin from Edinburgh Airport down to RAF Nordhalt. And it was well-tracked, but much, much more well-tracked than we thought it would be. So beginning of August, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, United States House of Representatives, flies from Kuala Lumpur to Taipei. That flight ends up being, I think it was like almost eight hours and ends up being tracked by 2.2 million people. At the peak, there were 700 and some odd thousand people following, 708,000 people following, I think. So we figured, okay, it's going to be a little bit more than that, but how much more we we didn't know. So we prepared the the waiting room that we kind of talked about before, and that helps kind of meter traffic because the, the issue with traffic and platform stability isn't necessarily the number of people. It's the concurrency of the number of of clicks. So when the platform gets hammered, it, it's basically like a real live DDoS. 
and dealing with all of that, that flood of people wanting to track something creates problems. The problem here was that it wasn't a few hundred thousand. It was six million people. That's a lot of people. At one point when I had the actual website loaded up, I think it topped out at like 520,000 concurrent people watching the flight before it kind of stopped. That was the transponder turned on and we went- Yeah, that was before it even took off. Yeah, yeah. The the transponder turned on. So to put things into perspective, there were nearly 200,000 people tracking a Turkish Airlines A321 that was just sitting on the ground in Edinburgh. That's important. It happened to be in the right place at the right time. So six million within one minute of the transponder becoming active, six million people tried to follow that particular flight. About six hundred thousand were successful before the site said this isn't really gonna work. So we had to implement more traffic calming measures, which I know is unfortunate. I want to have some of our infrastructure team on the podcast to kind of explain what we're doing because they're really, really, really excited about some of the things that we're working on in the next, well, starting a few months ago and and kind of working through the next few months to to really re, I don't want to say reimagine, but revamp the entire infrastructure that powers and sustains Flight Radar 24 so that things like this are a thing of the past where we have to implement traffic calming measures. You tried with the the YouTube live stream, which ran into the same problem as any other user. So you tried, you all did your best, but this is one of those situations where you can't test for it. You can't reasonably expect it to happen anytime in the near future. Just websites, any websites, whether you're FlightRadar24 or Amazon, isn't built to handle a spike in traffic like that. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the, one of the big things is... All of this stuff is live, so there's nothing to cache. So we run into the problem of having, we have to serve everything as it's happening, which becomes, I mean, we cache as much as we can, obviously, like the information about that particular aircraft or the the photo from jet photos that's shown as much as we can, but there's still a lot of things that just are just live data. So in the end, 5 million total people 4.79 million on the website, and then another nearly 300,000 on the YouTube live stream were able to follow the flight. If you were one of the people that was not able to follow the flight, I'm deeply and truly sorry. And rest assured that we are moving towards a solution that will allow a significant increase in traffic, even compared to, to what we saw last week. Though for the life of me, I don't want to think about what type of flight would lead to more traffic than that. This wasn't even supposed to happen. I think the queen wishes was were to be transported to take by train. train. She was her last. Her wishes were to be transported by train. And just like here in the U.S., where Biden wanted to go to his inauguration by Amtrak, because of course the powers that be that protect and plan these things said, "No, that's not safe enough. We'll put you in an airplane, and people can watch that instead." Yeah, I know. So, I know. The one so time you want so something to yeah. be an airplane, it should have been a train. Like, yeah, like so many other flights that should be a train. This was one of them. This is really a harbinger for a larger conversation. But so five million people, six million people tried in the first minute. Five million people total because of the traffic calming measures that we had to implement. So the the total would have been much higher. 
had the platform been able to support uh, additional traffic more than it was already the increase we already saw. So it's the most tracked flight of all time. And hopefully we don't see anything like that for a while while we implement all of these changes that I'm really excited about and our infrastructure team's really excited about. So how many people were watching your Delta E-175 flight? Probably less than that, right? A few I was, less. I was a few less. It was like 130,000. Yeah, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, definitely. When I travel, people fly. No, Move the I, decimal I point know. a few places. <laughs> 1.3. three people were following. So let's leave that at that. But that was her final flight. The RAF did a wonderful job. And it is now the most tracked flight on Flight Radar 24 of all time. If you want to watch a replay of the flight, you can click the link in the show notes. Now, something that we could also have not expected just a short time ago. We briefly mentioned it a couple weeks ago when John Ostra broke the news, and then both Emirates and United scrambled to put something out as by way of a teaser to not confirm it, but kind of confirm it. Today, the announcement that United and Emirates are entering into a code share agreement. United is restarting service to Dubai, they're now buddy-buddy. Yeah, code share and interline agreement. It struck me as a little odd. This announcement today was at Dulles, but United is actually launching its nonstop flight to Dubai from Newark, which is, I don't know why they decided to do that from Dulles. Really no idea why, but this starts up in March. Doesn't Emirates fly to Dulles? I mean, and, they fly to Newark too. Do they? They do. Or they used oh. to? I'm pretty sure they do. It's that one-stop oh, flight from Athens, I think. You just answered your own question. How did I answer They, they don't want to announce it at the Fifth Freedom Airport. Yeah, that's a good point, isn't it? Didn't really think of that. That flight does kind of represent the very thing United, Delta, and American were fighting against for years. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not that anyone other than you, me, or probably Gavin are, are thinking that deeply about the prop plane used for this. Yeah. Also not great that they flew a plane like 7,000 miles just to be a background image at the well, hangar. Did they but put passengers on it? I don't think so. Either way, whatever. It starts up in March 2023, Newark to Dubai nonstop. Really weird flight timing. It has like six hours on the ground in Dubai. Not sure what that is about. But Emirates passengers will be able to connect on to United flights in, I think it's Houston, San Francisco, and Chicago. And then Emirates passengers, both airlines will have an interline agreement at eight other U.S. airports served by Emirates, Boston, Dallas, L.A., Miami, JFK, Orlando, Seattle, and Washington, D.C. So I think that's all of Emirates' gateways in the U.S. So not quite a partnership. They won't. United passengers won't earn mileage plus points on Emirates flights just yet. But you will get some perks, I think, like uh, access to the Emirates lounge in Dubai if you're flying in a United premium cabin, which is nice. Sounds fine. Yeah, but this is kind of the the next step towards normalization of airline relations between the US and the Middle East. So we had American and Qatar not too long ago go all buddy-buddy, with American launching a flight to Doha from JFK. Now we have United getting buddy-buddy with Emirates, launching a flight again from New York slash Newark to Dubai. And all that's left is Delta. I think it is extremely unlikely we will see at any point in the near future Delta Inc. a partnership with as tightly with a Middle Eastern airline as we see with United and American because they were really the main player in the whole 
spat between the airlines. Yeah, they were the driving force behind. Yeah, spat's a good word. I, f- I feel like it's a more than a spat, a little bit deeper than a spat. Yeah. Is a tiff deeper than a spat? I don't know. It was stupid. Whatever. We could go British and call it a row. Yeah, whatever you want to call it, it was stupid, the whole thing. And it seems to have been swept under the rug. They they poked fun at each other today. United CEO and Emirates, the CEO, were at the event today in Dallas, and they were poking fun at the... I think they said, uh, Emirates, the CEO said, if I were here three years ago, you would have been throwing tomatoes at me or something like that. And yeah, maybe. I don't know. But it's just nice to see two very, very large airlines cooperate rather than throw up barriers that really just didn't make any sense. Yeah. So this goes into play over the coming months. And I think the most interesting question is how useful it is or how useful it ends up being for passengers. Because I mean, really, that's the ultimate goal here, right? Is that you've got, I mean, obviously, the ultimate goal for the airlines is to make money. But the ultimate goal, as far as we're concerned as travelers, is how useful it is for for passengers. And, And so I think, I mean, really, what you're seeing is United's getting access to India, or secondary markets well in India. That, the, it, the massive Emirates and Fly Dubai route network. It's not just Emirates, it's Fly Dubai as well. That's a massive route network. There's nowhere you can't go with that combination. True, true. But I mean, as far as United is concerned in and where the, the traffic can really come from with that Dubai flight, I mean, I, I think you're going to see a lot of people transiting on to secondary cities in India that Emirates serves versus them operating a flight to that city themselves. And then obviously, if you're flying Emirates and and landing in, say, Chicago or or Houston, I mean, that that opens up a pretty decent route network. I mean, you're now talking about what? I I mean, Dubai Fargo being a- A one-stop. A one-stop. That's that's amazing. Yeah. That's truly amazing. Well, I mean, (laughs) technically, they did have that before. JetBlue was Emirates' partner before they divorced, I guess. And JetBlue, I think they do or did have flights to Fargo, right? So that also, (laughs) under JetBlue, could have been a one-stop. They did have Fargo flights, right? Oh, okay. I don't know if JetBlue ever flew to Fargo. Well, Jason frantically looks that up. Mm -hmm. Let's stick with New York and DC, because this is an interesting one. So Tailwind was slated to start flights this week, right? From New York to DC. This is the seaplane operator that is flying, well, they're doing New York and Boston and a few other cities, and they were slated to begin service from New York to DC this week. Then they said, oh, wait, wait, we can't do that. They were going to fly to College Park. And then they were told that they can't do that for interesting reasons beyond their control. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. And then so they announced that they were going to fly to Dulles. Yeah. Uh, which is which is nowhere near college. I mean, it, it's in the same region, I guess. Yeah. But it's as far as things are concerned, it's not the ideal situation. So there is precisely one person in the world that is excited about this change. And do you know who that might be? I know exactly who it is. It's me. It's you. I unfortunately have resumed going down to Dulles a lot. And this option, while I probably wouldn't realistically be able to do it because it's expensive, but maybe just once, flight from the East River to Dulles is is quite attractive to me and probably literally nobody else. (laughs) But also, in in the same week, Delta announced LaGuardia Dulles service four times a day. So I'm rolling in options now. It's great. (laughs) <laughs> I love I love that you went from having 
just a United CRJ 200 to being able to choose between a seaplane and Delta out of LaGuardia. The airline industry is a, a marvel of the universe sometimes. Things change quickly. We went from like maybe up to four LaGuardia Dulles flights a day only on United CRJ 200s up to 13 just out of LaGuardia plus a couple from Tailwind out off the river. That's I don't know why there are so many flights on this route and there shouldn't be. But if there are, I'm probably going to make use of them. You're spoiled for choice. For now. I mean, wait two months and then they'll all go happen. away. And they'll yeah. all disappear. Exactly. exactly. It's all slot, slot squatting, at least for United yeah. and Delta. So they'll find a new shiny object on another route and all those flights will disappear soon. And you'll be stuck with Tailwind. Or left I mean, with Tailwind. There are worse options than that. <laughs> I mean, that's that's true. That's true. Okay. So next week, early next week is the 19th of September. And the 19th of September could be a very interesting day. A couple of very different things might happen. A couple of very different things might happen. So it is entirely possible that China will certify the COMAX C919 on the 9th or 19th of the 9th month. That is entirely possible because Reports are circulating that it is getting close to certification. There are two of the flight test vehicles that have been flown to Beijing. This is the first time that they visited there together. We're you know, shaking the magic eight ball of aircraft certification. All signs are pointing to yes. That's exciting. <laughs> I think so. Well, I mean, we'll have to obviously wait and see what happens, but we might be talking about this on next week's show. I hope we are. That's very exciting for China. Might might even mean at some point the Max gets recertified in China. But this is this has some pretty significant repercussions industry wide to have a re- the first real competitor to Airbus and Boeing. Well, only time will tell if that actually comes to be. I'm assuming Russia is probably very interested in these aircraft as well. After they placed their large order for Russian made aircraft and said we'll never order another Airbus or Boeing again. But this is exciting for China. But I wonder if Russia can order those aircraft because legally speaking, there are enough parts in the C919 from Western aerospace industries that they're probably sanctioned in Russia. Does China care about that though? I think China probably cares about that because they want to continue to receive the parts for their own aircraft. Yeah, that's true. So we'll we'll have to see if that happens. It's probably why we haven't heard of any such an order just yet, but good for China. Always good to have a new aircraft manufacturer breaking up, not breaking up, but adding some competition to the duopoly. Uh, whether yeah. or not this aircraft will be successful in China or outside of China is anyone's guess at this point. But the track record off the ARJ-21 can't get any worse than that. So there's only room to improve. Can only go up from here. Yep. A month later, on the 19th of October, much closer to our homes, is the vote by Spirit Airlines shareholders to accept or reject the JetBlue proposal. All signs there, again, point to yes. Whether or not that eventually culminates in JetBlue owning Spirit Airlines is still a long way off, but this is another step in the process and another vote along the way. So not expecting any fireworks there, but but something to, to put on your Avgeek calendar. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm distracted. I'm looking out the window at a pair of what looks like Blackhawks are just very slowly cruising over the skies of Brooklyn. 
Good for them. All right, then. Good yeah, for them. That's nice. Let's go to India now, shall we? Back to India. We already went to India. Back to India. Okay, we're going back to India. There we go. This time with Air India, they have signed an agreement to take five triple seven two hundred LRs along Ooh. with a, a vast ones. selection of A320 Neos. So it will be four A321 Neos and then 21 A320 Neos arriving in the second half of next year. So those are going to be used on domestic and short-haul international routes. And the five 777-200LRs will show up by the uh, beginning at the end of this year through March of next year. And so that will be an interesting addition to the Air India fleet for two reasons. One, they used to operate the, that particular aircraft and, and got rid of it. They do then, not have a good history with that particular aircraft either. <laughs> then the question becomes, where are they coming from? A lot of the speculation was that they would be coming from the 10 aircraft that Delta retired. That does not appear to be the case, given the fact that those are slated for cargo conversion. And we mentioned Gavin earlier in the show. Gavin and I, Gavin Warbluff, who is our resident numbers expert, who spends, in my estimation, far too much time thinking about these things. But as far as listeners of the podcast might be concerned, not enough, because his, his insights are often very useful. Looking at what that lease agreement would say about the cargo conversion market, not so great. So it seems that these aircraft will come from Air Canada, that which is the, the most sense. likely candidate at this point. The announcement has included that they will have premium economy. So this kind of leaves Air Canada being the, the likely source as they seek to, to get rid of their 200LR fleet, at least the passenger one. Their Incoming $200 fleet will be cargo. So it remains to be seen what ends up happening with these leases to Air India after Air India is done with them. Do they get converted to cargo? Eh, probably. Yeah. Delta, most of these aircraft, at least the, the ERs, are, are in the middle of conversion to, to freighter. One of them is actually operated, or was at least operated, by OneWeb, the satellite company, as a flying testbed for satellite connectivity, which is pretty cool. One of them, I thought, ended up as a private aircraft for a sports team. N866DA is owned by Gridiron Air LCC. I think that one is now a private jet very fancy i don't remember who exactly was it the patriots was it not it wasn't the the patriots because the patriots have the two seven six sevens right i don't know it's not somebody it's white now <laughs> it's white it's owned by an llc but some of them will remain in passenger service but not for uh, cardinals it was the arizona cardinals. ah that's it right 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 and they they modified the interior but some of them will end up in non-commercial passenger service, but it's not going to be Air India. Good for them. Their fleet is in, in dire condition, and that's kind of why they have to go out here and buy some, or at least some aircraft to, to fill in the gap because their aircraft, I think we talked about this recently, are kind of falling apart on the inside. But Air India has a troubled history with 777LRs in the past. They did have them in their fleet, but they kind of, they were very new aircraft and they started cannibalizing them on the ground very early into their lifespan, which is a shame to see. But hopefully they treat these ones better than the last batch. 
Well, these will be leased, so who knows? <laughs> well, in that case, I really hope they don't part them out because yeah. they don't belong to them. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, I don't think that'll happen. Let's talk about some really interesting things that happened yesterday. So yesterday, a Wizz Air aircraft that had been on the ground in Ukraine since the beginning of the war made it out. That was one of four aircraft, yeah, Wizz Air still three uh, more A320s. Yeah. There are three three in Kiev. The one that made it out yesterday was in the Vogue, and that was HALWS. The transponder went on as soon as they left Ukrainian airspace and, and flew into Poland. So that's one down, four to go. It would be really interesting to see if the other four make it out anytime soon. The three that are still in Kiev are HALWY. H-A-L-P-J and H-A-L-P-M. Yeah, those other in, in Kiev. That's, that's a much farther flight to get over to friendly airspace. Those from the, the aircraft that went out this week just had, what, like a 50, maybe 100 mile flight over to the, the Polish border. The others in Kiev, the, the nearest neighboring country is Belarus, and that's not good. You don't want to fly in there because Belarus is complicit with Russia and the whole Ukraine situation. So they would have to fly quite a bit west to get to Polish airspace, and that's probably a bit more risky. So that, those are probably going to be there for a while. Yeah, it'll, it'll, it remains to be seen if and when they'll be flown out. But hey, one um, aircraft is better than none. Good for them. Right. And it also remains to be seen how and what condition those other three Wizz Air A320s are, given the fact that they've been much closer to the fighting. Yeah. That's another open question. Let's talk about our favorite Scandinavian airline, SAS, which has had its bridge financing approved. We talked about the fact that they were working on wide body lease returns, three A330s and two A350s. They're, they're rejecting those leases and sending them back. They had their bridge funding approved at the end of last week. And then at the beginning of this week, they announced that they were trying to work with lessers to reject a few leases for A320 NEO aircraft so that they could continue to slim down their fleet as they reconfigure everything. So things moving along as far as SAS is concerned, it's a long way from, from a sure thing that they come out of this on the other side, uh, a, a leaner and, and stronger airline. All right. As long as they're still around in December for our flights to Stockholm. Yes. Yes. And they haven't rejected the lease on those aircraft. Yeah. That would be problematic for us. Yeah. yeah there you go. I just don't want to end up on a, on a Euro-Atlantic wet lease. Yeah. No. 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 Yeah. Thanks. Airbus cut Qatar's final A350s orders. They're gone from the order book now. What is this? Like the fourth time they've incrementally canceled this order? They're done. And now now they're it's done. all gone. Now it's all gone. Okay. All of them are gone. So there are no, for the first time, I, this would be a, a fun trivia question that that is just coming to me now. And so I, I don't have the answer off the top of my head. But for the first time in X number of years, there are no Qatar Airways orders with Airbus. I feel like it's got to be for as long as Qatar has been an airline, right? They've had Airbus aircraft in their fleet for, yeah. forever. I don't know what that length of time is, but it's a really, really long time. I don't know who can answer that question, but... I mean, I could probably look it up when we're done recording. Yeah, but I'm Qatar has had Airbus <laughs> aircraft, like every Airbus aircraft. They, they've had the A380, A350, a And been the launch A3 customer for a lot of them. 321, yeah. 320, 319, 310, and A300. There isn't really an Airbus aircraft they have not had. Well... 
I, I guess now whatever comes next really is is probably off the table at least for for a while. But until all of this gets resolved, and and who knows when this will actually be resolved, no more Airbus aircraft for Qatar of the line for new aircraft orders, which is a long line right now. Yeah, especially now if you, if you're an Airbus customer, or not yet an Airbus customer. The summer started off not great bad. at all. Bad. bad, bad is the word I was looking for. As far as passenger ease of use at various airports go, Heathrow was a mess, Schiphol was a mess, variety of airports, Orlando was a mess, and, and Stockholm, variety of airports uh, across Europe especially were just an absolute disaster at the beginning of the summer travel season as the airports didn't have enough staff, as a crush of travelers came through, airlines were operating too many flights for the staff they had. Things had normalized a bit over the last few months. And so by the beginning of September, things were looking up. And then people forgot that the up-tempo of travel was still such that it was compared to how many staff were available. And so now we're starting to see bad things happen again. And and this time it's Schiphol yet again is a problem. But Jason, you had some interesting take on on basically what happened. Yeah, I had read, I, I don't have the source in front of me right now, but basically Schiphol has stopped paying staff like a summer bonus, an incentive to come to work. So workers stopped coming to work. They stopped picking up extra shifts, I guess, or stopped working as many shifts as they were, and it just threw the airport back into chaos. Whoops. Not enough slack in the system. No. Not that, even that's, close. I mean, if, it, if that's all it takes to put the airport back into chaos, that's not great. No, certainly not great. Meanwhile, also, we had other issues in Dublin this past week where Aer Lingus's IT fell over for like a day and it was all all disaster there though that can happen to seemingly any airline anywhere at this point we'll actually talk about that more in a moment but Amsterdam in particular just can't catch a break but also it comes at an interesting time in in September mid-September now when things are supposed to be chill summer's over kids are back in school parents are back at work people are largely done with their summer vacations but an interesting quote was tweeted out from at the transcript underscore on Twitter, I guess an account that tweets out transcripts from earnings reports, uh, this one in particular from United, that September has been actually really strong. And I'll quote them here. What I would say is we're seeing a really strong September and it doesn't, it does not appear that summer has come to an end. It's that strong. We look at Mexico, Caribbean, Europe, kids are back in school, but the demand for our product in those places is the same as it was in the summer. It's a premium leisure demand ultimately that's driving this strength. This is new. Before COVID, September was supposed to be a month where you could non-rev wherever you want or get an empty middle seat or, or lower fares. And it, it seems the summer season has bled into the fall. And that is a new and very interesting twist, one that I am not happy about because I love traveling in September and October. It's the best time of the year to travel because other people aren't doing it. They've ruined it. Anecdotally, I can confirm what Patrick Quayle from, from United is saying. I mean, my flights, except the 7.30 p.m. Saturday evening departure from New York, New York to Chicago, which was healthy, but not completely full. 
All of my other flights were completely full. It's not supposed to be that way. It's good for the airlines that they are busy, but as a leisure traveler who likes empty flights and available seats and low fares, it's horrible. But it's good for the airlines. Fair enough. I was surprised my Delta flight from New York to Stockholm. I did not expect that to be completely full. Especially since it's a route that they only picked up again during the pandemic. They haven't flown that route in years. And that's on top of the other airlines operating that too. We have Finnair flying JFK Orlando as well. So there's now four airlines flying New York-ish to Orlando and they're all probably all full. It's crazy. Yeah. So they're looking at these numbers, looking at the the revenue reporting from the airlines, and then looking just anecdotally being in the aircraft. Things are still busy. I wonder how much the pandemic's influence on being able to work remotely and being able to school remotely is influencing kind of the bleed through of premium leisure travel. Because if you're looking at premium leisure travel, you're talking about people who probably have white collar jobs and who are probably able to work or at least partially work from not at a desk in an office these days. So I guess what I'm wondering out loud for the podcast, and and dear listener, if you have any opinions or thoughts on this, please podcast at fr24.com. Is this the new normal? Has the fantastic fair and empty plane of mid-September through mid-October gone away? Or is this just something where we're seeing so many people, there was so much pent-up demand that so many people are like, forget it. I'll take my kids out of school. We'll go. It's not a big deal. Now that we can finally go. I mean, I I don't know. People put off their, their summer travel and did it in September, but summer was plenty busy with travelers. So maybe it is really just people traveling when they want, dealing with it. Yeah. I I, say stop it. (laughs) Okay. We said we were going to talk about another IT issue. And this one isn't the airline's fault. Jason, you- It's never the airline's fault. Come on. No airline will ever admit to an IT issue. Except if you're BA, you'll break out the high visibility vest. But (laughs) this case was- was, You could still blame the airline for not having proper redundancy. Same goes for Aer Lingus. You don't, your, your backup plans are not real backup plans if one issue takes out your primary and backup functions. But in this case, this is really weird. I picked up on this. I had missed this back in January where apparently WestJet had some major issues in Calgary back in July. So actually like two months ago at this point. But the weirdest thing happened. A freight train, I think it was either a Canadian Pacific freight train derailed outside of Calgary, like 140 kilometers outside of Calgary, and took out two buried fiber optic cables. And that itself ended up taking out ATC functions for Nav Canada in Calgary and also a bulk of WestJet's IT services. And that impacted their flight significantly for like two days. And it's just, that's the weirdest thing that a freight train derailment a hundred miles out of town could impact flights. It's like the beginning of a movie. Yeah. It's just, it was 85 miles outside of Calgary. They canceled a bunch of flights, delayed hundreds. It lasted for two days, enough so that WestJet had to make a note in their weekly performance metrics, which I just picked up on is a thing, by the way, that this external factor impacted their flights because of Nav Canada issues, but also their own IT issues. Just the weirdest 
the weirdest cobbling together of words that I've seen in a while. I think the exact words were significant operational impact on July 14th and 15th due to Western Canadian train derailment, which led to network-wide IT outage. That's a weird one. I don't think we'll ever see that again. I hope not, but there are a lot. These things happen. There are more than you would think fiber lines running through railroad right-of-ways. So it could happen again, but just the odds that like there'd be a freight derailment that would be bad enough to take out a fiber. both fiber optic lines is just, just, just strange. Yeah, that's, that's a new one on me. I want to close the show with something that we've done, I think, once or twice before, but not usual. When I fly, I like to to read books. I just like having a book in my hand. And so I wanted to recommend two books that I thoroughly enjoyed on <laughs> across all of my flights last week. The first was The Apollo Murders by Commander Chris Hatfield, who we're going with a space team. So I, I promise it's, it's avgeeky enough. Commander Hatfield's book, it's his first novel. It's a historical fiction set in the Apollo space program after the last Apollo and it takes off from there and there are murders and it's an interesting mystery novel and really, really well written and I thoroughly enjoyed that. And then I finished that and so I asked for recommendations what to read next. And a few people, first on that list, uh, Matt Cherry recommended Project Hail Mary, which is Andy Weir's follow-up novel. He uh, wrote The Martian, which is also amazing if you haven't read that. Even um, I have read that book, and I there don't you go. read books. And, and so I picked up Project Hail Mary in the airport on the way out of Stockholm and finished it before I got home. Wow. Well, you also had like 18 hours of that JFK. Good. So. True, true. I, I did, but it, but I was also taking pictures of mismatched radomes while I was at JFK. So that happened too. Project Hail Mary, a very good novel as well from Andy Weir. So the Apollo Murders from Chris Hadfield and Project Hail Mary from Andy Weir. If you're looking for a, a book to read, listen to, peruse on your e-reader or or wherever you you find uh, reading in between listening to this fine podcast. This has been episode 181 of AvTalk. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, please tell us about it and tell other people about it by leaving us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. We truly appreciate it. I appreciate it ever so slightly more than Jason. I promise. Uh, yep. Yep. I am Ian Pechenik, and I am here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.